Hi, this is Scott Belsky, author of The Messy Middle, and you are listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of my quest for the best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Scott Belsky. Scott's passion is to make the creative world more productive, connected, and adaptive to new technologies. He founded Behance, the leading online platform for millions of professionals in the creative industry to showcase and discover creative work, and he served as CEO until Adobe acquired Behance in 2012. He now serves as Adobe's chief product officer. Scott actively advises and invests businesses that cross the intersection of technology and design and help empower people. He's an early advisor and investor in Pinterest, Uber, Carta, Sweetgreen, and Periscope, to name a few. He splits his time between New York and San Francisco, and he's here to talk about his book, The Messy Middle, finding your way through the hardest and most crucial part of any venture. Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Bill. Good to be here. Scott, one thing I like to ask all high performers who come on the show is when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Well, I'll give an answer that I'm sure other folks have given before, but um, my father, he was an orthopedic surgeon and just a hardworking doctor that I found, you know, two things were really striking to me. One is he was driven by empathy and just the nature of his bedside manner, his willingness to talk to patients whenever about whatever, and also just the late nights where he'd be up doing his dictations, where he would, you know, write or transcribe his notes for the day. And it just was a very important kind of person for me in my life in terms of what work ethic would mean for me. And I, I continue to think about those thoughts often. It leaves an impression when you see a parent putting in that kind of time and caring about his patients to that degree. And I'm, I'm sure that's made an impression on you. Can you remember a time either growing up or early in your career, when you referred back to an example that your dad set for you? There's a, I remember when I would be waking up in the morning for school growing up, you know, in the 6.30 a.m. or whatever, and I'd be kind of dilly-dallying and, and a little bit like intimidated by the day ahead of me and therefore especially tired at the start of it. And he would kind of come in all ready to go to work that early. And, uh, despite having been up really late the night before. And he would always kind of say like, come on, let's go. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And, you know, there's a, that's like a, it's a soundtrack I've played in my head over the years as I have, uh, have also been in those moments where it's just endless exhaustion and having to push for another day, especially during periods of uncertainty, building my business and, uh, you know, in other volatile periods, it's, uh, it was, you know, kind of a helpful memory that has stuck with me. When you started out writing The Messy Middle, was that after you had transitioned from Behance to Adobe? Well, The Messy Middle was actually the culmination of a lot of different notes, observations from board meetings, 3 a.m., 2 a.m. type conversations with entrepreneurs going through an acquisition the next day, <laughs> like just sort of the, the at the fringes of the experiences that I had as a founder who had also bootstrapped his business and then you know, advising others and dealing with um, and uh, just, you know, watching other stories, I just kept writing down things that I didn't want to forget. 
And that ended up culminating in an 800 or so notebook of insights in my Evernote at the time that I one day said, you know what, I should probably start categorizing these and looking at them and like a puzzle, like how did they fit together and what can I learn from them? And in that process, I realized that there were three major themes. You know, one was enduring those lows. The second was optimizing everything that works, both in your product as well as how your team works. And then the third was the final mile and not screwing it up. And so those th- three themes it became kind of the subsections of the messy middle. And, and uh, over seven plus years of jotting these notes down, you know, that was kind of those are the kindling blocks, so to speak, of the book. One of the charts that appears very early in the book is the relative joy of creating. And it shows how joy rises and falls over time. And it's really illuminating. Can you describe it in words? We'll also post it on your page and with credit, of course. But can you describe it and how you actually came to illustrate that and capture that really important concept? Well, I just think that uh, we are governed by short-term reward systems as people from the birth. We are, are, we're just kind of seeking our parents' affection and care. We're seeking gratification and thumbs up, checks on tests, grades and courses and exams, you know, and then as the venture capitalist Fred Wilson once said, you know, the two greatest addictions in life are heroin and a weekly salary. You know, we are also addicted to that as a form of reward. And the short-term rewards are necessary for us to move forward. And so as a result, whenever we have a, bit, a bad period, we think we should quit. Whenever we have a good period, we think we're winning. And, uh, and it's always in the moment. And of course, in retrospect of any bold journey, what you learn is that it's just a series of these ups and downs. And, and maybe the competitive advantage is just sticking with it long enough to figure it out. The curve that I show in the messy middle is that it's, it's intended to dispel the myth that an idea is exciting, and then it gets extraordinarily hard, and then it's kind of a linear path upwards to the finish. That's not true. It's actually more of what I describe. It's a series of ups and downs, of moments of despair, followed by moments of promise. And if you can aspire for a positive slope, meaning not get so up and down, but rather just focus on incremental progress, or at least um, at least highs that were higher than the ones that came before them and lows that are less lows, that that's actually the holy grail, and, and that's the cornerstone of the book. Yeah, it's actually, when you say aspire for positive slope, I just want to really get more granular than that. It's like an EKG that's tilted, rising, as it goes from left to right. Yeah, <laughs> because right. Because it's down that you go in there. You know, exclamations on either, listen, we're not our best selves at the lows. Why? Because we make decisions out of fear. Because we start to think that we are doing something wrong, and then we're hasty, and uh, and... We're not our best selves at the highs because we falsely attribute the things that we did to the things that work. We become high on ourselves and our, we become overconfident and we become um, you know, somewhat you know, narcissistic to some degree on, on our capabilities. And so I think that's part of the realization as well. So in preparation for this interview, I've had conversations with other CEOs, business leaders, software team leaders, and podcast subscribers. Everyone can relate to the situation the title describes because products, product launches, team projects, client relationships, even the response to the COVID-19 pandemic feels like we're beginning and not nearly at the end. One thing a lot of people want to know is, is about the messy middle is how do you define when we're in the messy middle and start to share it as a way to help people orient to know that this is something that is a natural part of projects and to start looking for ways to make progress even when it seems like things are in a huge mess. 
the way I will back into that answer is to say that um, you know one of the trickiest parts of being an investor or a board member, you know, is when you have a conversation with a leader about whether he or she should quit or stick with it. And because um, there's difficult periods of time that you go through where there's no end in sight, where you're low on runway for cash, and you're not sure if you can pay your employees in two or three months. And and so it's during those calls where I always try to determine one thing with the with the leader, the founder I'm advising. And it, that is their level of conviction in the end state of what they're trying to do in the world, what the brand is that they're trying to build, the problem that they're trying to solve. And I always ask, so given all that you've learned so far, do you have more or less conviction in state or problem, the way you see the world being? And if the answer is, well, you know, I had a great idea of what I want to do and what the problem was. But then after the last two years of customer research and partnering with people and what have you, I actually have less conviction. Like I actually think we were off. My question then is, well, why should you stick with it? Maybe you should quit. Don't waste time of your life doing something and throwing yourself into something that you don't have conviction in, in the end state of it. Um, however, however, if, you know, and, and oftentimes the answer is, well, actually, we have even more conviction. We have more data. We have more research. We know this works. We know that works. However, you know, there's no end in sight. We're struggling. We're running out of money, whatever. And in that case, I, I remind them. They're just in the messy middle. Like they're experiencing what is par for the course and don't over-dramatize it. If your conviction is as high, if not higher than when you started, you're making progress even though it feels like you may not be. And I think that's the distinction that you're asking about, about whether you're in the messy middle or not. And it really does come down to that sense of conviction, the leader, based upon everything that he or she's learned. That's really important to emphasize, especially in these times when we're in a very volatile time and we're not connected physically with people. But I think a lot of software developers have the experience of working with people in remote teams and still there's a lot of uncertainty in the air. And I think coming back to that sense of conviction is really important. What are some effective ways you've seen for people to harness that conviction when they're leading a team? Well, I mean, two things I would just say, you know, one is that you have to be very honest with yourself. I think the narrative and merchandising progress to your team, merchandising your conviction, your team are important uh, attributes and things that a leader should do. However, you can't do so at the expense of hard truths. And so the rule of thumb for me is that as leaders, we need to be extraordinarily optimistic about the future and do all the things I just mentioned, but also be pragmatic about the present. And so, for example, I think a meeting should be, all right, everyone, uh, wow, like we tried this and this did not work. And um, now, why didn't it work? Well, maybe it was the experience. Maybe we had the go-to-market wrong. Maybe, you know, so-and-so did not do a good job on the field. Like, let's all own what our role may have been and then this not working. And let's really pragmatically say, why are we behind? What tasks are we not getting to? Why are we not working fast enough? Like, really, we should hammer ourselves over this. But then after that conversation and the next steps that come out of it, then the leader needs to end the meeting, leaving people with more energy than they had coming into it. It's important to then restate that conviction, but here's how that would look like. But hey, like, let's take a step back for a moment. You know, we know that X million customers are struggling with Y every single day. We know that our customer research is telling us that this is in need more than ever before. 
We know that the way this market is changing is in our favor. We know that this and this and that, like restate a lot of these very optimistic points so people kind of know their North Star. Like the flag has been planted in full resolution and also people leave with that pragmatic sense of why we're not winning. I mean, I think that is the kind of formula to both address hard truths, ground us with the present, but also like really outfit us, you know, to head in the right direction. Scott, I think that's really a great framework because it matters that you state the conviction at the right place and the right time as part of a process where you've gone through and explored where the weaknesses are and where performance may have fallen short, as well as come up and met expectations. And then you also in the book go through and find two areas that you're exploring. One is where the product may or may not be aligned with the needs of the customer. And those are product spec failures or, or shortcomings. And then the other is the implementation areas where engineering may not have carried out, where you may have tried to take on something that was technically not easily solved. So those are really good distinctions about that. And I think that it, it goes to the fact that as a leader of a team, you've got to keep your eye focused on playing the long game. What are some things that the leaders who you advise and have worked with and have learned from do to help keep themselves oriented in the long game while also being able to change focus from the long view picture of what problems you're going to solve and address and being able to come back down and say, listen, we need to make this dialogue, this screen, this interface work by the next build in two weeks. Yeah, well, let's talk about the long game for a minute and what that looks like. One entrepreneur that I've worked with and you know, known for years is Ben Silberman, the, um, the co-founder of Pinterest. And he came from a family of doctors where you had to actually go to school for seven years and train for another three years in order to even legitimately call yourself a, you know, a practicing doctor. And so when he kind of came out of that background into Silicon Valley, where the mantra was move fast and break things, and if something couldn't be done in a week or two-week sprint, you know, something was wrong, he questioned the status quo of that. You know, he said, hey, why can't you patiently bake something over time that really accentuates a technology or changes an industry? And so that is, you know, that's something I learned from him. And one way he did that is... He every year would have a chapter for his company where he literally merchandise, like give it a name. And I remember one year for Pinterest, it was the year of monetization, right? Where they launched their ad product. And that was the one of the major disproportionate focus of the company. One year it was internationalization, like we're gonna pick our first region or two. Um, one year it was actually four categories of customer that they wanted to really rally around. And it was actually a very helpful tool to consolidate all the energy and focus of his teams. And it was a very different approach than what a lot of other Silicon Valley leaders have, where they're always running all these different experiments and moonshots and, you know, and, and different groups are working on entirely different things, sometimes not even communicating with one another. But it was an approach that I really admired. And I think was part of why Pinterest won, you know, in their category and built a really exciting, enduring public company. That's so true. And so many of the small business leaders can benefit from having an annual theme or mantra. Sometimes having that longer view, so it's not just focused on the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, or even quarter-to-quarter, but saying a year from now, this is going to be the year of making sure that we monetize, making sure that we scale to the certain level or address 
particular customer categories. That is such a powerful idea that I hope that listeners really embrace and spend time to develop their own themes. Are there any techniques or questions or insights that you've gained by listening to Ben talk about this with Pinterest that you could share? Well, I think that it's one thing to break down the you know bold aspirations in the chapters and help people know what to focus on. But I think it's also important to really be a great merchandiser of that story. And uh, the analogy I actually like to use personally is, you know, you're driving your team cross country with the windows blacked out in the back seat. And so none of them know where you are or the progress that you're making. And so if you just keep at that in that way, without telling everyone about the milestones you're passing, the bridges you're on, the state lines you're crossing, people are going to go crazy. And they need to feel like they are making progress and they need to be narrated through this journey. And actually, that analogy really holds when you're in a bold project or turnaround or new venture, you know, small business trying to crack something new starting from zero. It's really hard for your team to know that anything is going in the right direction. And so now I'll actually pull some research that was done by a woman named Teresa Mabale, a professor at Harvard Business School, around motivation. And she did this big kind of diary-driven research project where they handed out and had large groups of people in big companies do like a diary entry every day where they also measured their kind of level of motivation and the inputs and the outputs. And what she really found, and other studies have also supported this, is this notion that progress begets progress. So when people feel like they're making progress, they're likely to be further motivated and they're likely to make more progress. And so that actually goes to say that if your team is not feeling the progress that they're making, they're unlikely to continue doing so. What are the tactics for that? Well, should you put up completed to-do lists or numbers of JIRA tickets or another metrics that development teams or design teams or retail teams, like how do you merchandise those metrics to the team so that they're feeling like the past is the tailwind, you know, for the future? What kinds of things do you celebrate? Do you make up fun little games and, and short-term kind of accomplishments along the way to keep people focused on the long-term? Like at Behance, we actually had some very fun, creative ways of doing that. Such as? <laughs> Such as, I mean, two funny little stories. You know, one is I've been a lifelong vegetarian, maybe for, you know, 30 of my 40 years. And my team thought it would be fun to make me agree to eat certain types of meat off of certain people's forks at certain types of milestones. And I was like, <laughs> you know, whatever, sure. You know, uh, if we ever have uh, half a million users in Behance, of course I'll eat chicken off of Dave's fork. You know, what? why not? And Never thought we'd actually get there. And I figured if we did, well, that would be a luxury problem to deal with. And in fact, one Christmas dinner, we finally did get there. And it was just one of those fun things. We called them slap bets in the team where we would just, again, like try to create these fun little milestones to keep us engaged. Another really interesting and fun one was that the name Behance is made up. And so when we would um, would type in Behance into Google back in 2006, early 2007, it said, do you mean enhance do you mean enhance and so we were a mistake you know behance was literally viewed as a mistake by google the search engine and so we said to ourselves yes you know money revenue real user growth real notoriety is years and years away however let's try to be a legitimate search result in google within the next three to six months you know, let's put enough blog posts and portfolio link backs, and let's just really singularly focus on doing this. And then yet alone, like you know, 
five or four months later, we typed in Behance into Google, and then it was a legitimate search result. And it was one of those moments. It was in the right direction. It was pushing our team in the right direction. It was a short-term reward that we could actually accomplish. And I kid you not, like six months later, Beyonce became super popular and we lost it all over again. (laughs) But the point is that that it's external validation that everyone was able to celebrate. And it also points to the fact that there are external factors you can't control for. Right. Exactly. And but this is these are the types of games. These are the these are the merchandising efforts that I'm referring to that a leader must be creative with. And these are the types of things that you don't necessarily think of as part of the job of a leader of a team. But you are a sales and marketer, you know, more than anything else. You are always selling and marketing to investors, employees, prospective employees, but also employees to stay once they're there and customers. And you also have to be pragmatic as well. Like that's the other point. You can't just be a promoter that people stop trusting. So there's a balance. It is. And one of the things that reminds me of is early in the book, you talk about how there are some managers who get seduced into trying to keep morale up at the expense of hard truths or at the expense of underperformance. And what would you say to a, a project manager if you were given the opportunity, he was at a meeting that was appropriate to, to talk to him, or he was on your team, who was seduced by the lure of celebrating fake wins as a way of boosting morale? Yeah, well, celebrating fake wins at the expense of hard truths is probably what has led to a lot of the flameouts that we come sometimes talk about in the media of startups that set off to do something bold and then prove to be disingenuous at best or fraud at worst. And I think that that is the result of leaders failing to just acknowledge, you know, what the setbacks were and what things are not working and and be willing to make the difficult decisions accordingly. Luck favors decisiveness. And uh, the reason is because when you're decisive, you can learn from your mistakes more quickly. You can get further resolution on the possibilities around you. Dots start to connect and people, there's a gravity you know, around being decisiveness and being honest. You know, I think that that's actually an incredibly important thing in in the long-term health and viability of a team. It reminds me of the book that was written about Elizabeth Holmes. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with her? Yes. Called Bad Blood. And she was an excellent marketer and um, merchandiser of her message, because I'm not going to call it a truth, (laughs) but her message. And she was extremely powerful with that. And she also made some really profound mistakes that are easy to identify much closer to when they're causing problems within teams and companies. Mm-hmm. What are some things that stand out about her story with Theranos, the book that was written about it, Bad Blood, which is just an excellent, excellent book. What are some of the things that stand out about the way that she was very effective at telling her story, but also creating a, a horribly corrupt culture? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I don't know. Her personally, and I was never involved with the company, but I'll tell you that I did see her speak once at like a TED Med conference. So it was sort of like a TED conference focused on the medical community that I'd gone to. And um, I mean, the one thing that threw me off was um, there were, uh, you know, how sometimes when you just watch someone speak and then there's kind of a crescendo at the end, like a moment where they say, and this is why, this is what we're going to do in the world, or this is the future or whatever. But if they do it, if it, if it comes once at the end of a talk, from a speaker that has really worked up to it with a lot of facts and a lot of more pragmatic kind of down to earth arguments, then maybe, you know, it's, it doesn't come across as trite. One thing that just struck me when I saw her speak was just how many of those moments there were throughout. 
And it was, it sort of threw me off. I was like, why is there so many, these big picture promise moments at a med conference, especially where you'd think it's more about like using the, the clinical trials say, this is what it looks like. And this is the data. And so I just wonder if, you know, again, from over-indexing on that side of it, I think that can be a real liability. And so it's, it, you know, are you promoting, are you trying to make something look better than it is? That should be a, a real kind of warning sign that you're um, on a dangerous track. So if a project participant is listening to a project manager who's overselling the progress that they're making, either internally or externally, maybe one of the things that they ought to do is um, say, we, we need to talk about where we're falling short or missing our milestones because we need additional resources or additional clarification or, or external feedback, and to actually ask for those things. Have you ever been in a situation where you've empowered or were surprised by an employee asking for things that you thought didn't need to be covered? I'm not sure about that. And well, I mean, I, there's many, there are many instances where as a leader, I find that the role is to kind of peel back all of the corporate euphemisms and lingo and and really have like some impatience for kind of bold statements and really get down to like the granularity of what someone's actually saying. And also make sure you have a culture where it's okay to say, I don't know. Oh, actually that didn't work as well as you're saying. And here's why. How do you make sure that people feel comfortable doing that? You have to celebrate it. You have to say, oh, thank you for pointing that out. Or listen, like, I'm glad you made that and feedback after a conversation, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought us down to earth in there. Or I'm glad you shared both the good and the bad data. That really helped us make a better decision. I think those are the types of little training moments that you have to do in a team. And they seem obvious, but if you're trying to keep a team together, despite all of the failures you're enduring and the lack of any light at the end of the tunnel, it's actually harder to do that sometimes because you want to feel, you know, you want to always be the cheerleader. And uh, that, again, can lead you to a dangerous place. It's difficult also, I think, where there's managers who are responsible for carrying out a decision that isn't entirely embraced by the team. I'm, I'm thinking of the story you told in the book when you're at Adobe and you're making that huge shift from a software product in a box to a subscription model. And it was difficult to have those conversations because there wasn't that level of clarity. When you reflect back on that, what's one or two lessons that you learned from managing that process or being involved in that process? Yeah, sure. A couple of thoughts there. First of all, alignment is everything in an organization when you're leading change. When, when, you, when everyone is fully aligned, the, the speed at which you can move and the amount of trust you can have, anyone having any meeting and making any decision without you, you know, that is what unlocks the potential of an organization. When you don't have alignment, there are two ways of dealing with it. Well, first of all, you have to know that there's a lack of alignment. And I like to say that everyone should be a whistleblower of a lack of alignment. If you go into any meeting and you detect that people are not aligned with the strategy, you have to speak up. Like That's how you make the organization healthy. When people are out of alignment, there's two ways of dealing with it. One is to do the work to show something that no one can argue with. You know, and I love to use prototypes. I mean, to me, prototypes are worth a thousand meetings. When you have a really well-baked customer journey that no one can argue with, it's just so obvious and logical that this is a superior experience for customers, that gets people aligned. You like a, a hot knife through the butter of bureaucracy. It's a really powerful thing. And that's why I empower designers in the product 
process and why I always make sure designers are in the meetings when we're discussing strategy. If you can't do that or to complement that, the other way of solving alignment or misalignment rather is to throw process at the problem. And process slows us down, but it is sometimes necessary. I mean, when you have more people across more regions with more interests and different expertise and you have to get them aligned, sometimes you just need to throw more process into the mix, more check-in meetings, more approvals. And, you know, I try to do so sparingly because I think it's an easy solve and I think it actually grows and then accumulates into what I like to call organizational debt. These processes we're still going through because of the fact that they were thrown into the mix two years ago but are now at the equivalent of cruft. And so also you have to kill processes as much as you create them. But anyways, I digress. You know, that's how we tackle alignment in an organization. Perhaps when we introduce those bureaucracies, you ought to, ought to always add an expiration date. Fine, we'll go through this and we'll yes. do it for the next two or three months. And then we'll review to see whether it should be sunset or renewed. Yeah. Scott, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Sure. All right. So earlier I asked about a person who inspired you growing up. What's a song that inspired you as a teenager? (laughs) I was actually really inspired by Alanis Morissette's entire album, Jagged Little Pill, when I was a teenager. I remember in my early years of high school, when that was all the rage, you know, just this like person who was a kind of pop star before and she was on like Disney's channel and whatever. And then suddenly just like unleashes this soulful, raw album that just, catches everybody off guard in this profound way. Like to me, that was just like such a great statement on creativity and emotion. And um, and I remember being really taken aback by it. I, I actually <laughs> had similar feelings. It was, it was a lot of fun. If you could put a slogan about your work on a billboard that every executive and creative project team leader had to view each morning, what would it say? Well, you know what? I would hope it would be one of those digital billboards where I could change it based on what we wa- <laughs> where we are in our, ma- in our mind that day. But um, you know, it would probably be that a labor of love always pays off, just not as we'd expect. I think there's something to be said for knowing that if you love what you're doing, your skills combined with your interests and your initiative, you'll always land in a great place. It's just you have to be open to uh, some surprises along the way. And having written The Messy Middle, what's the most important lesson, idea, or practice that you personally find valuable on a day-to-day basis these days? Well, there are a number. I think one thing I'd be whispered to myself in times where I'm forced to make difficult decisions. And, you know, in these days, with the trading of resources in the COVID crisis and having to really hunker down as a product organization that can't just invest as much as it typically would. One of the things that I have to do is make difficult decisions, tell people those decisions and sometimes disappoint people. And there's a part of the book where I say, uh, there's this thing that I would whisper to myself when I was going through very difficult times in Behance and other entrepreneurs, you know, I've said similar things that they would say to themselves, which is do your effing job. And I'll spare everyone the pejorative, but sometimes you kind of have to whisper to yourself to get up, and just do it. Um, You know what you need to do. You know that until you do it, everyone is looking at you as a bottleneck and you just have to get up and do it. And um, and that's something you have to whisper to yourself sometimes. That's really important, especially given the fact that we don't have the normal cues that help keep us accountable and on track with the uh, promises we've made. Right. Scott, what's the best $100 purchase you've made in the last three months? 
Oh, that's easy. I have awkwardly shaped inner ears, apparently, because my AirPods have never really truly fit in them. And I'm really into running these days. And it's just always been very annoying. And so I finally found a pair of silicon AirPod adapters that actually make me use iPara AirPods when I run without any uh, fallout, which is uh, a godsend. These are great when those little things can make such a difference. <laughs> right. And what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? That I've stopped or started, sorry? Well, everyone thinks of things that they could start, and we often have a never-ending list of things that we want to do to improve. But sometimes we improve by stopping things that are no longer appropriate. What's something that you've looked at, reviewed, and said, you know what? This, this doesn't fit anymore. Huh. I, you know, I like any normal human being. I was eating breakfast every day for my whole life. And then I started this new intermittent fast regime and my allergies went away and a lot of things, you know, improved in my health. So I would say that the thing that I stopped is, is uh, eating before noon. <laughs> that is fascinating. So Scott, I just want to thank you so much for contributing to my quest for the best today. You've, you've shared so many great ideas around the messy middle about your experiences and learning from your father, who was an orthopedic surgeon, and how we need to adopt and stay true to some of the values we learn. And what you learned from him was the work ethic and being able to really care and have that empathy for, in his case, patients, in your case, customers and coworkers and colleagues. The short-term reward systems are so powerful that it's critical for us to embrace them rather than try to manage without them or to let them just come about at, through, through its own evolution, but to steer them. We want to be sure that when we're working with teams that we aspire for a positive slope with that feedback, because it's really important to look at it at that granular level. And asking people, you know, on a periodic basis, given all that you've learned in the intermittent process, do you have more or less conviction at the end? And being able to time some of the difficult feedback you have for a team to make sure that they leave with more energy at the end of the meeting, rather than trying to insert the positive news and convey the message, as important as it is, at the wrong times. It serves as best to leave people at the end of the meeting after you've gone through all the ways that they've had shortfalls. And for these and so many reasons, Scott, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today. My pleasure. Scott, where can we find out more about you and your work? Yeah, I mean, I'm easy to find. So at Scott Belsky on Twitter or Instagram, I try to um, be accessible and, and would love to answer any questions. And certainly I try to share the latest and uh, you know things that I find interesting on those channels. Scott Belsky, author of The Messy Middle, thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. 
We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.